0: Still appreciate your generosity. Okay, I'd like to consider now in these um, concepts of the character of God another very important quality uh, God, our Savior. Is that where I'm at? Yeah, okay, whoops. <laughs> there we go, that's the one I wanted. Now remember that back when the Angel visited Joseph for the first time, and it tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that uh, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way uh, when his mother Mary and Joseph were were uh, betrothed, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit, and Joseph being a just man, not seeking to make an example of her resolved to reserve uh, reser- uh, purpose to divorce her quietly, the angel of the Lord came and said, "O oh, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The concept of Savior is uh, evident throughout the entire Old Testament as well. Sometimes called the Messiah or Yeshua or whatever, but it was the seed of the woman that was to crush the head of the serpent. actually, the name Jesus, if you put it in Hebrew it's Joshua, and if you put Joshua into Greek, it's jesus so so for that wonderful leader as well then uh, exodus fifteen two at the occasion of the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, Moses had said, "The Lord is my strength and my defense; He has become my salvation." And uh, also something from David, from Second Samuel 22: The Lord reigns; blessed be my Rock, exalted be my God, uh, the Rock, my Savior. And then the tragedy uh, is mentioned. In the next verse from Deuteronomy 32: That uh, the pattern that was established among these people was here. They rejected the God who made them, and rejected the God their Savior. And so we read the history of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, and it's one of a lot of rejection as time went along. But lest we be overly critical of them, that pattern is the same throughout today, is it not, in many cases. Okay, so uh, uh, let's look at the last one. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Okay, I'd like to go on to the next set. Uh, verse uh, chapter 60 of Isaiah, Then you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The point that is made here is that there are many places where the Savior is used in the Old Testament Scriptures, Uh, either the word Savior or salvation. As Lamentations mentions, good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then in Joel 2.32, let's go to that little book. If you're not familiar with... uh, the Old Testament, real well, you can probably find Daniel. And after Daniel, it's Hosea and Joel. So in Joel chapter 2, Joel is a book that talks a lot about the disaster that came as a result of of a locust invasion. But then he uh, goes from that to the illustration of something that would take place in the latter days. And it begins with verse 28, 28. It says, it will come to pass in the latter days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your um, uh, young men shall dream dreams, your old men shall seem visions, and even on your med- maidservants and maidservants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And then in verse 32, it says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now when Pentecost broke loose, according to Acts chapter 2, You may remember that it was Peter that stood before a previously hostile crowd and quoted this passage from Joel 2, with great authority, by the way, and added that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now, some of these people that were in that audience probably were there when they were crying out before Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And you may remember that a short time earlier, about seven weeks earlier only, that in the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus was interrogated by the Jewish Sanhedrin, there was Peter that before two little girls denied he even knew who Jesus was. Now he has a tremendous boldness as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And he preaches a word that is so convicting that it tells us in Acts 2.36 when they heard this, they were cut to their heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in a powerful way and said, what must we do to be saved? Now that is easy evangelism, by the way. When the Holy Spirit works in a person's heart to that degree, all you have to do is direct them to the Lord, right? It is, but it's the Lord who brought about the conviction, okay? Okay. And then in Acts 4.12, when the disciples were brought before the religious authorities, and they said, I think that's the context, but let me look at it with you, Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. Yeah, because in verse... Verse 19, it says, or verse 20, we have to obey God rather than men and so on. But in verse 12, they said, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. That's the exclusiveness of the gospel, right? Now, there's a real effort today in what we call Christendom to make it easy for people to to be what? I'm not sure what the result is, but basically that they might be uh, accepted by God, shall we say it that way, Uh, easy believism or something like that. And therefore, uh, the statement in a universalism kind of a concept is all the roads bring a code of the same God, right? right? All the same way, you know, whatever it is. And then they even get over in saying that even some of the False things like Buddhism or, or, or Shinto or, or Muslim uh, Mohammedism are also ways to the same God. And you see the scripture is very, very clear to point out that only through Jesus uh, can there be salvation. There is no other way. Okay. So that's very important that we note that because uh, the Lord set the pattern, not us. Okay, let's go to this one. Where God is forgiving, you know that to be true. In fact, uh, the one major aspect of God's work in mankind's heart and life is via the avenue of forgiveness. It has to be there. Because apart from forgiveness, we would have no hope, any of us. Because remember, the scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so therefore... Uh, because we're in that kind of a position before God then we have no hope apart from him. And so therefore as our first parents sinned in the garden and remember what the Lord God had said to them actually said to our first father the day you eat of this or shall we say the day you rebel against me in this way you will surely die. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, dying you will die. In other words, there was to be a complete death as a result of this rebellion. So then our first parents found themselves in an unredeemed state. Prior to that, they were sinless for that time. Now they are in an unredeemed state in a, in a death situation in which they died spiritually at that moment, total spiritual death, that was to leave in time to a physical death that went with it. And the word death basically means separation from God. In our case, it's separation of the soul from the body. So, now God had to do something to bring about some kind of a restoration process, right? If our great God uh, certainly wants to uh, uh, bring man now into relationship with him, having lost that relationship, it has to be some, through some avenue of means by which God can accomplish that. And of course, it could not be left up to man because he can't do it. He is uh, not possible to be able to uh, live a perfect life. There's only one who did. And so, therefore, God had to enter into the scenario in order to accomplish for man what man could not accomplish for himself. Hence, right away in the garden, you will probably know it, that he said, actually addressing the serpent, saying, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. In other words, the death blow to the enemy shall take place through this one individual. Seed is singular. The one seed of the woman. In other words, there would come a remarkable event in the history of mankind. No time mentioned at that time that would be born, the only one that would ever be born, a a woman would bear a male child without the aid of a human father. And that child would be the incarnate Son of God. It was reinforced over and over again. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, you shall call his name Emmanuel, and all the things that were part of the prophetic word were there at that time. Okay? So then had to come the the opportunity you see for this thing to take place. So we have the statement in Hebrews three twelve. It's actually a quote. Uh, in fact, this quote You'll see that sometimes in your Bibles when there's a quote, it will note the quote or it will put the quote in italics or something to set it apart. But this quote, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more, is actually a quote from Isaiah, twice in Jeremiah and once in Micah. Four places where it actually says that a specific thing, an Old Testament passage. And then something else from the Old Testament, notice please, in Numbers chapter 14. Uh, Regarding the character of our great God, the Lord is slow to anger, aren't you glad? Abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, but, notice the yet there? So we don't miss the import of the passage, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Who are the guilty? Those who aren't redeemed, those who aren't forgiven, right? It's either you are forgiven or you're not, right? So, therefore, we would say that there 's only two kinds of people in this world: those who were forgiven and those who ought to be there aren 't any other kind right right it 's not a matter of doing the best we can because something that 's infiltrated our thinking process since day one i mean day one in in our first parents is that you can be your, you can work your way to salvation by doing being a good person. Remember that the temptation the enemy gave to our first parents in the garden was. You can be as God. I usually think of that in terms of some kind of a spiritual phenomena, but basically what the enemy was saying, you can be independent from God and make it your own. That's what he said. And that's the thing that we have a tendency to do. And as religion has been established, both in Old Testament Judaism and New Testament Testament Christianity, it still infiltrates, does it not? If you go to a memorial service or a funeral service, depending on what the deceased desired, you will find that by and large, it's a complement to the good life that these people have lived, right? And that ought ought not to be the main thrust of a memorial or a funeral service. Not that they can't complement some things that the deceased had done that was a vibrant illustration of their faith in God. But the implication that's often given in memorial and funeral services is because of their goodness, they made it to to the, they were saved. Right? (laughs) And you've never been to a funeral service where they said bad things about the deceased, right? Did you ever hear the story (laughs) about this, um, there was two brothers that were in the mafia? I don't think I've told this before, but I think it's funny. Anyway, these two brothers were in the mafia, and uh, they were just cruel, brutal, murderous guys, you know. Took lives and had no thought about. It. And one guy died, the one brother died. And so the other brother wanted to have a, a funeral service because mama would like that. And he wanted uh, someone as a pastor to come and say nice things about his brother. <laughs> He couldn't find any. <laughs> he even offered big bucks for somebody to come and say nice things about his brother. Uh, in fact, he, he said, I want you to say that he's a saint. And so funny, there was a pastor that took him up on that because it was, uh, you know, they offered a lot of money to do this. And so he got in the funeral service, and he just went on and on about the raunchy, raunchy guy this was. He was about the worst criminal you could find. And here his brother <laughs> sitting on the front, cha- front seat just getting red with anger. So when he got through this whole litany, he said, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) but isn't that what we do, you see? It's all comparison. And so, (laughs) must have heard that from someone before. Okay, Okay, let's look at the next one. Then, hear from heaven. This is the prayer, by the way. Uh, These last two are Solomon's prayers. At the time of the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. One is from the kings and the other one is from chronicles. Uh, they are the same setting, same time element. And it's a remarkable thing that he did. Solomon in his early, earlier years was a marvelous man of God. He was par excellent in terms of his walk with the Lord. Uh, he, he had followed the pattern of David and in some ways excelled in his earlier life. And so as he came and brought this Great dedication to God, the temple, marvelous uh, edifice. uh, Had it not been destroyed by the Babylonians earlier, I mean earlier in our time history, it would surely have been considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was that magnificent. So anyway, uh, it was such an amazing thing because all the people from Israel were there in leadership. there was a several-day thing. And then it tells us when the dedication was actually done, the presence of the Lord was so heavy in the temple they couldn't get in. Can you imagine? imagine going to church and you can't get in because the presence of the Lord is so heavy? That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And it's at that place, by the way, that Solomon then adds something as an addendum to this wonderful worship prayer. And he said, in time to come, when the, my people walk away from you, God, here is what we, play, pre, we, we plead. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive an act and deal with everything occurring to all they do because you, you know their hearts. And then, of course, we have the other one from Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Okay? Great promise that was made at the time of the dedication. And warning too, of course. Okay, Psalm 32.1 is also quoted by Paul in Romans 4. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then Psalm 130, verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness, so that with reverence we serve you. Now, this next one, part of the Lord's Prayer, is a very significant passage of Scripture. And so, we have the Lord's Prayer, and you can know that without looking at it or anything. But there's a little singular part of the Lord's Prayer that's really interesting. You know, after thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us this daily bread, and forgive us our... And on the, in the Matthew's Gospel, it says debts, but Luke in Mark, it says sins. So we would assume that sins is probably a stronger word. That means that which you are in bondage to, which is what sin does. So using the Mark passage, forgive us our sins. Now if the prayer had stopped right there, it would be significant. It's more significant because it doesn't. Because there is a clause that is added to that. Forgive us our sins in the same way we forgive those who sin against us. Now, that's a pretty heavy prayer, isn't it? Can you realize what people say? Uh, like more churches that use liturgy and so on as a commonplace form of worship will always include the Lord's Prayer in their service. And in that congregation on a Sunday morning, here is what they're saying Father, please don't forgive us. Unless and until we forgive those who have sinned against us. Amen. I think that would be a scary way to pray. Maybe they should keep their mouth shut during that part of prayer. No, it's but notice in verses 14 and 15, because it's not a well, maybe it just was a translator error or something. So then we have verses 14 and 15. If you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them, your Father will not forgive you your sins. It is that important. Okay. And looking at the first part, if we have a forgiving spirit, that means we'll be open to the grace of God, because forgiveness is a part of the character of God. And if we develop that character in our lives, we will be open for salvation. Therefore, one who is forgiving will be very close to the kingdom of God. But if we don't, no matter how spiritual we try to be, no matter how... uh, how much we go through traditions in worship and forms and all this kind of stuff will not help you one iota if you're unforgiven. And you've heard people say, have you not? If you haven't said it yourself. that Because you've been wounded by someone. And only those closest to you have the power to wound you the most. And they say, I'll never forgive that person. I'll never forgive. Or they might say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. That's not a forgiveness. I'm still holding it. That's why, it's a, that's why it's still a strong memory. Now, ha- having your Bibles open to that, let's back up one, chapter 5, 23, where it says in relationship to the same concept of forgiveness, it says in verse 23 of chapter 5, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And that's why that's so important that he put it in that context. Now we realize that this is a Jewish form of worship. but Let's put it in our form of worship. Let's suppose on a Sunday morning you're worshiping in your congregation. Now it's great, you know. Really feel close to the Lord and all of a sudden you have this memory. Right Now notice what it says. Your brother has something against you. It's not saying you have something against your brother. Notice the wording is very clear. You have something, uh, your brother has something against you. There is something that he has done to you by which you have never forgiven him. Okay? So then you need after the service and coffee and donuts to go find this guy, right? No, that's not what it says. It says, leave your gift at the altar, your offering. You can't offer, what's the best offering you can give? Yourself, right? Isn't that what Romans 12, 1, 12, 2? Uh, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Prove the good and acceptable perfect will of God. I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The greatest offering you can give to God is yourself. And you can't leave yourself at the altar. It's saying that you immediately, from that point in the service, take care of the problem. Because that's that important to God. God is more concerned about you living in a forgiven state than he does for that service to continue. And then suppose that the other person is in the audience. And then you have to immediately go to that person, which will disrupt the whole pastor's message, right, Wilson? <laughs> you will have to stop it because, you know, it's getting so loud out there, you can't keep on going, and everybody's attention is attracted to that. The point being, God considers that of utmost importance because it's more important that two believers get reconciled with each other than we go through forms of worship. Remember that always because we tend to think it's tradition that counts. No, God's not into programs. No. He's into something quite different. That's what we have to see. what how, how shall we say... Uh, practical, the word of God is. And if this was to happen as a consistent thing, just think how it would go. Turn with me to a cross-reference with this in in James chapter 5. And in James chapter 5, it begins in verse 13, any who suffer, let him pray. But then notice verse 14. Is any among you sick? And he gives a pattern here for something. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And and the Lord will raise him up. Okay. And then it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Now notice that the result of this event is the healing of the individual. So remember it says, Is there many the sick? So here I have a person that's very sick and he comes to the church for healing, to be prayed for for healing. Very legitimate and obviously good thing to do. Now notice that the practical flow here is let him call for the elders of the church. Now the pastor, depending on, on how your church government goes, might be one of the elders. Or he may not. A lot of churches, they have a pastor who's not considered an elder, He has elders underneath him, depending on the form of government. So these leadership people, whoever they are, let's say men, come up and pray for him. But then remember that the passage in a practical way says, confess your sins to one another in this setting, and pray for one another that you might be healed. So let's picture this scenario on a given Sunday morning. And there's somebody very, very ill. And so uh, the pastor makes time for uh, elders to come forward to pray for this person in public. Now, before they can pray, they need to know, the pastor needs to know, that these elders are in a forgiven condition with each other. Right? That's what it says, doesn't it? So he would address these, let's say, five elders, and say, now, gentlemen, I have to know, because I don't know your hearts, if there's any animosity in your hearts toward anyone, including the other ones here. And if there is, I'm going to give you time to confess it right now. Okay? Now, if I was one of those elders, before I came to church next Sunday, I'd be dead sure that I'd taken care of this before the service started. I don't want to be embarrassed in front of the congregation by having to do something that I should have taken care of anyway. Notice how important that was. But notice that the result was that the person might be healed, which seems to point out that healing is a normal byproduct of a correct relationship of people living in forgiveness with each other. I really think that's an issue because, you know, it's right that we pray for healing, and most churches do, but we need to realize that there's a factor here involved that can be a barrier between the person really getting healed and not. Because if it's a byproduct, a gift of the Holy Spirit, as a byproduct of correct relationship, then we better make sure relationships are the way they should be. And you don't know anybody else's heart and mind, that's true. But we can do the practical thing as it says here. And as it says in in the, the passage we looked at in Matthew 5. Therefore, in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive me in the same way I forgive those who uh, have something against me. And if I can't think of it, remind me if you need to. Right? Suppose he will. It's a good prayer, so you always do what you ask him to when it's right. Okay? <laughs> okay? Okay. We looked at the last one before. Let's look at this one. God is our shepherd. This is a, a most familiar concept, or one of the most familiar concepts we have in the Bible. And because of Psalm 23, just about everybody on the street knows Psalm 23. By the way, there's certain things they know. Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23, and invariably in many memorial services or funeral services, it's a favorite. Right, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not be in want. So that's on mine. And then in First Peter 2:25, it says, "Like sheep, we like sheep are going astray, and we return to the shepherd and guardian of your soul, our souls." first uh, Peter, let's look at First Peter two. Two twenty-five. William himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by wounds you've been healed, for we were going astray like sheep, and we've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Sandy, I remember one time. Uh, Sandy and Willie Wilson worked with us as house parents at the Bible School. First two years we were there, and I really appreciated these people in many ways, since and before. But I remember one time we were having a uh, staff meeting. We were, I was talking about this verse. It talks about like shepherd. Let's, let me read that thing again. How it states. We're going a sheep like we're going astray and you return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And you picked up on that and had us sing, Savior like a shepherd lead us. Do you remember that? I remember (laughs) it. Isn't that neat? The point is that the purpose of the scripture is always to be practical, right? And that's why it's good we can pick up on things and encourage people to be involved in the same way. Okay. Let's see. Yeah, uh, let's look at the First Peter 5 one. Be shepherds of God's flock. you got your Bibles open to the First Peter anyway. And remember that Peter was considered in the book of Acts basically the leader of the early church. Uh, mainly because of, remember what Jesus said, Peter on this rock or confession, I build my church and so on. And then he becomes the outspoken leader in the early days right at the time of Pentecost, eclipsed, by the way, in the book of Acts by Paul later on. But uh, in verse 1 and 2 of First Peter 5, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Notice he is only considering himself a fellow elder. So much for this popery, right? Now, uh, as your fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. And he says, Three things in terms of the congregation or how they are to relate to them. How leaders are to relate to their people. First of all, uh, shepherd the flock of God among you. In other words, act as the good shepherd to your people as the example of the Lord Jesus exercising oversight but not under compulsion but voluntarily. In other words, not forcing people to meet your requirements. But they should do that on their own. And then secondly, uh, not for sordid gain. Interesting term, isn't it? Because you see in ministry, if you want to get wealthy, get into religion. Because people are very susceptible there. They tend to trust people who are in leadership and religion. And they're uh, usually willing to give very substantially, if they get taken over by these uh, charismatic leader types, right? Uh, we, we've had the sordid of story of many who in so-called evangelistic leadership that were only in it for their, what they could get out of it. Tragedy. And then the third thing, not lording over them. You're the same. Same. No, no better than anybody else. A fellow elder in the grace of God, okay so important to note that. okay, then in uh, chapter seven, let's go to Revelation seven. And let's look at the last verses of Revelation seven, verse fifteen. For this reason, this is these the people who have come to uh, be with the Lord. Uh, chapter or verse uh, 8 it says clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands from every nation, tribe and people group and ethnic group verse 15, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he'll spread his tabernacle over them illustration of the Hebrews in the uh, wilderness wanderings remember what was covering them each day what was that? What do they have over them during the cloud? To keep the penetrating rays of the sun like cloudy. And what at night, by the way, as an illustration of his presence? Pillar of fire. Okay. So anyway, tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, Now the sun beat on them, nor any heat. But notice in verse seventeen, the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, and he shall guide them to springs of living water. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. What a blessed situation, right? Let's look at this concept of redeemer. The word redeemer is known in the Old Testament, it means the one who buys back out of the sin, the pit of sin. Isaiah 53 I've redeemed you, you're mine. And Job, in all of his frustration, while he was still in deep misery, said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Right? right? And then Galatians 3.13, familiar passage, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Okay, Let's go on to the next theme. These are themes that run throughout the scriptures. And by the way, this is not exhaustive at all. It's only a small picture of, of all the things, uh, like in the book, that really represent the character of God. It's actually full of it. you ever read the Bible just to see what it says about the character of God? You never thought about it, did you? But it's just full of it. So think of that when you read your Bible. What do you think this portion I'm reading will tell me about the character of God? you would be amazed at the stuff that's there. Okay, the Lord is merciful. Aren't you glad? He's full of compassion and mercy. Uh, Psalm 28, uh, 78. Uh, um, the yellows are to see he's merciful he gave their iniquity and did not destroy them this was this, the, the history of the Hebrew people and then this passage in Habakkuk 3 now the interesting thing about Habakkuk it's a little, uh, 3 chapter Old Testament passage but Habakkuk uh, is right at the time when the Babylonians are coming against Judah with the threat of destroying Judah in that sense, somewhat contemporary with Jeremiah. And what he's saying is, how is it that you're, because Jeremiah's prophesying the Babylonians are going to conquer Judah, right? They're, they're going to come. You may as well surrender. They're going to come. God's designed it. In fact, he has Nebuchadnezzar as his servant, it says in scripture. And Habakkuk can't handle that. And he says, how is it these brutal Babylonians, you're going to favor against the people of God, so called in the land of Judah. And finally, God gives them the picture in Habakkuk that judgment is a way of God to get to people that can't be gotten to any other way. Does that remind you of America? See, we, we in, in reality, of course, need to pray for good government, we need to pray for uh, good leadership. But there comes a point of no return sometimes in a society, and God will give them over to the government they deserve and the judgment they deserve. And when Habakkuk realized this, here's what he prayed. Okay, Lord, but in wrath, remember mercy. <laughs> That's our prayer, you see. In wrath that God is going to bring, even upon this nation, O oh, God, remember mercy. God is good? <laughs> you knew that, didn't you? There's a phrase that sometimes people use, you know, they'll, they'll say, one will say, God is good, and the other one repeats, all the time. <laughs> You've heard that, right? That's a good thing to do. But do you realize the meaning of that? That God is good? It's, well, of course, I know He's good. But you see, we will meet certain things in our lives that people sometimes call tragedies. They will happen to everybody at certain times of their lives. There will be the death of a loved one. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It would be even harder. A parent. It could be a a sickness, an illness in which the person lingers on without seemingly any healing. Prayers and prayers go for this person. They never get healed. There can be financial disasters. There can be accidents. Now, When these things take place, so let's take it for illustration of an accident because it's immediate and it's sudden. An accident takes place and someone is uh, nearly killed. Let's say that they uh, never walk again, according to the prognosis, the result of this accident. Now, what goes through people's minds is this, uh, very uh, humanly speaking. God, you're sovereign. I believe you're sovereign. That means you're all-powerful. Therefore, you could have stopped this accident if you wanted to. But because you didn't stop it, I'm having a trouble with your goodness here. You follow me? Now, normally, that you don't think that way. But when difficulty comes, severity of the difficulty will cause you to think that way. It'll be a thought in your mind. And the only thing that you will have left is the knowledge that he's good. And because he's good and cannot be inconsistent with his character, he cannot be anything other than good. He can't be ungood. He can't be bad. Right? But people will struggle with that. And it's something they have to struggle through because it isn't going to do much good for you to tell them, Well, God is good, this is really for the best. Because that's like salt on a wound. Right? You remember Job? when he went through this terrible thing and he had three friends, colleagues that lives not too far from where he lived in the land of Uz and when they heard that their friend Job was ill they hopped on their donkeys and made a fast trip over to Uz to see Job and when they got there he had already deteriorated in his physical health so much they couldn't recognize him do you remember what they did? Before they started dialoguing with Job, they sat in silence for seven days. Okay? Sometimes that's the best thing you can do. That was to their credit. I am told that in uh, Orthodox Judaism, they still do that. Someone dies, they go and just sit with the uh, bereaved for seven days without saying a word. Because sometimes the grace ministry we can give to somebody is not what we say they'll never remember it anyway, but the fact that you were there. That's what they will remember. Okay? Now, you remember in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the New Testament book of John, chapter 11, there's a story, an account of Jesus' friendship with uh, three apparently uh, senior young adults, not senior young adults, young adults. There's no parents mentioned. Uh, two brother, two sisters and a brother the names of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Remember that? And it tells us in John chapter 11 that at one occasion, Lazarus was ill. But he was so ill that he died shortly after the statement was made because Jesus was two days away ministering another area. And they sent a telegram to Jesus via runner with this statement, He whom thou lovest is ill. By the time the runner got there, he'd already died. And then Jesus stayed uncharacteristically, and where he was for another two days. So then it was four days before he got back. Lazarus was already dead, and in the tomb, by the way, four days because they buried the same day people died in that time. And remember that it was Martha that met Jesus as he came. And what she blurted out of her mouth was this, Lord, if you'd have been here, a brother wouldn't have died. In other words, you failed us in our moment of need. Because Martha knew that Jesus healed people and didn't always do it in the close proximity of the person. He healed from a distance sometimes. You could have stopped this death. You didn't. Remember that? And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And that didn't help at all. She said, I know you've been teaching us about this stuff about the resurrection. (laughs) Exactly what she said, but that's pretty much... Uh, how you'd say it. And he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha. She didn't answer. And she went and got Mary. And Mary came, same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, our our brother wouldn't have died. And that's where you have the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words, Jesus wept. And you might ask the question, why did he weep? So if you consider all the alternatives, you're only left with one. He didn't weep because people cry at funerals. That would not be like him. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead anyway. He, he didn't cry because everybody else was crying. He wasn't that emotional. There was only one reason why he wept. And that's because for the first time in their experience, these lovely ladies doubted his goodness. And it broke his heart. See what I'm saying? When we say God is good, that can't be done in a shallow way. He'll test your, your word. Okay. Okay. He's always good, and therefore, uh, looking at the last passage, which is often misquoted, where it says, you know, it's usually quoted this way: "All all things work together for good to those who love God." called according to his purpose. That's King James' translation, by the way. But it doesn't flow that way, and therefore the later translators did it better when they said, in all things, God works for good. If things don't work for good, God works for good. So in all things that happen in our lives, whoever we are, God can use it for good and does and wants to because he has eternity in mind. And then, of course, I think we'll close with that. on Psalm 23, the last verse Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There was this little boy that his parents took him to the pound to adopt a dog. But because there were two little dogs that he liked so very much, they adopted both, and he named them Goodness and Mercy because he remembered that they will follow me all the days of my life. Well, hope you appreciated what we shared tonight. Tomorrow night will be under other aspects of the character of God, and I hope you can make it at that time.